if there is, God forbid, new genocide in Burundi, if we do see a complete collapse of governance in the middle of Democratic Republic of the Congo, if we see an already god-awful situation in South Sudan turned into just complete and utter bloodshed, what is going to be the response of the United States? Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, executive editor for News, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined in the studio by Ruben Brigitte and Dan DeLuce. Ruben is dean of the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University and an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He previously served as the U.S. ambassador to the African Union and U.S. permanent representative to the U.N. Economic Commission for Africa. He's also the author of Ethics, Technology, and the American Way of War. Dan is FP's chief national security correspondent. And joining us by phone is Colm Lynch, FP's UN-based senior diplomatic reporter. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. I want to start off talking today about Africa, and in particular, an article that we published today about a Republican senator blocking the nomination for a key diplomatic post overseeing Africa policy, citing his concerns about the status of the Western Sahara region in Morocco. Um, Dan, can you tell us a little bit about this article? And, and you say as a launching for what it sort of means for what the Trump administration's policy or lack thereof there is for Africa. Yeah, so um, there are many unfilled uh, positions, as you know, in the State Department, very senior ones, and uh, that especially applies to Africa. Uh, and there's been no assistant secretary uh, for African affairs now, and we're now into August, and almost into September. And uh, the, the the name uh, they chose, the person they want to, to appoint, uh, is, a, is a pretty established uh, Africa policy person, uh, a Republican, but has advised uh, previous Republican candidates over the years and so on. His name is Peter Pham, uh, an academic uh, and policy uh, wonk type. But um, they haven't announced the nomination because uh, Senator James Inhofe uh, has uh, threatened to put a hold on uh, on it uh, over an issue that technically doesn't even fall under the remit of the Assistant Secretary for Africa. It's an issue uh, in Morocco, the status of the Western Sahara region, and he's long championed uh, the cause of the Western Sahara and and uh, and their stra- and their uh, appeals for independence and more autonomy and so on. Uh, and so that's where that nomination is. But um, the, the 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 bigger issue, as which you you were raising, was this vacuum around Africa in this administration. So not only is no one in that really important position, but there's no ambassadors in some key places, including uh, South Africa and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And you don't hear the administration articulating exactly what its policy is on, on some very key issues in some key places. And you you did see that with Sudan, where there was a big decision they, they were going to make about uh, whether or not to lift sanctions, and they just uh, delayed it. Um, and, and I'm sure um, the ambassador could talk more about that. But that that shows you uh, kind of the, the huge vacuum that's developed. And then, of course, the African governments are reading uh, the same newspapers we are and, and watching the same television reports and, and hear this talk about America first. And they also, you know, are concerned about uh, the U.S. withdrawing from the Paris climate accord. And of course, climate change is something that affects uh, these countries very severely. So there's tremendous concern and consternation. And you don't really have uh, someone uh, at the helm uh, driving the U.S. diplomacy. 
Ambassador, back in February, you had written for Foreign Policy about the strides it actually made with the U.S. relationship with Africa and then sort of the setback of the current administration. You'd written that President Trump is jeopardizing this important relationship, not only by his silence on Africa, but by his statements and actions in other areas. Can you talk about what some of those areas are? And that was back in February. Has this gotten worse, better, or just the same since then? Sure. Well, it has gotten worse. Uh, And I think that's true not only in Africa, but it's arguably true across a variety of aspects of U.S. foreign policy uh, due to the uh, lack of uh, uh, senior appointments uh, across the entirety of the State Department. In the Africa space in particular, um, there is important cooperation that has been developed between the United States uh, and individual African countries, as well as indiv- as well as multilateral African uh, institutions on wide variety of matters from counterterrorism to other forms of security assistance, uh, to health assistance, to various forms of economic development assistance from rural agricultural development to questions of you know infrastructure and whatnot, all of which you, that has at a minimum been put on a hold or also backslid. And the important thing to remember is that Africans are not not waiting for us to get our act together. They are actively moving forward, and certainly in my conversations uh, with African officials, both here in Washington and also when I travel to the continent. As a general proposition, they are looking at what's happening in our country with negative amazement, I think is uh, fair to say. Um, They are questioning uh, the extent to which the United States can be seen as a reliable partner on their matters for economic development. They are clearly thinking harder about other potential partners, principally China, uh, but others, to uh, help them develop in ways that make sense for them. And we are seeding um, decades worth of bipartisan engagement on the continent at precisely the time when Africa is becoming more and more important by virtue of uh, the growth uh, the coming of age as a war of its demographic bubble um, by virtue of their taking some important strides to get their economic and governance houses in order, uh, and also at a time when, as I say, partnerships with uh, other non-African states are becoming more and more mature. And actually, Dan alluded to the Sudan issue and the review of sanctions. What are the implications? I mean, the, the State Department claimed this was not a result of empty seats within the department, that this was just more review. Uh, wh- what do you think of that? And what are the implications of that being sort of dragged out? Well, I think it's clear that empty seats have not helped the matter, even if one could reasonably say that uh, for a variety of reasons, the department wanted to do a, um, a more in-depth uh, policy review. But then one has to have the question. On what basis are they making this review? Because they don't have an Africa policy at all. Uh, so, yeah, has Trump? I mean, it's not been an area he's made statements on other than the fight against ISIS and concerns about terrorism. Has he articulated no, anything? No, not to my knowledge. Um, he, I think he has uh, reported uh, even before he was uh, inaugurated to have had, I think, one phone call uh, with the president of South Africa, Jacob Zuma. I think he also had a phone call with uh, the president of Nigeria, uh, Buhari. Um, the chairperson of the African Union, Mustafa Faki, was here in town in, uh, in February or March, I think, and had an incredibly, or was supposed to come to Washington at the invitation of the Secretary of State uh, that was basically, it was basically given the, the cold shoulder by the Secretary at the very last moment, uh, which incensed the Africans. And then the Secretary is uh, followed up to invite him back again to Washington. Um, uh, see, we'll see how that happens. I think, you know, and, uh, frankly, a, a big uh, place to watch to see 
what, if anything, the administration has to say on anything related to Africa will be the UN General Assembly meetings uh, in New York next month. Um, yeah. Because obviously the whole world will be there. Um, the African leaders will be there. It'll be interesting to see what, if any, engagement um, any senior leaders uh, with the uh, Trump administration have uh, with African leaders while they're in town. Well, that's a great question. I mean, Colm, you know, covering the UN and you're, you will be there for that. What, what do you expect or what things will you be looking out for there? Well, I mean, African issues are not really even on the list of priorities. I mean, one of the issues that they're sort of concerned, you know, they're interested in being sort of associated with are sort of high-level discussions on famine. Um, so this is sort of a global issue, and Africa, along with, you know, certainly Nigeria, Somalia, South Sudan, um, Yemen, or will all be sort of issues that will be discussed. But in terms of really kind of, you know, hammering down on on sort of a whole range of crises in Africa. I mean, one of the things that strikes me with this move by Senator Inhofe is it comes at a particularly bad time. I mean, you, you had the outgoing administration, you know, you had a national security advisor, Susan Rice, who was deeply engaged in African issues, who knew all the leaders who had previously been um, assistant Secretary of State under the Clinton administration. You had an ambassador here in New York who was deeply interested, didn't have the same level of background, but through her work, Samantha Power, through her work on genocide prevention, was quite active on issues like Burundi and the Central African Republic. Um, and there really doesn't seem to be kind of a core of people in the administration who are really focused on these issues. And we have some, you know, really, you know, big you know, big world sort of crises unfolding right before our eyes. We have Central African Republic, um, a country where there had previously been concerns about um, genocide, uh, fighting between um, Christian and Muslim militias, um, is now, uh, the UN has been warning recently that there may be, there, there are deep concerns about um, um, concerns about genocide again. There have been major constitutional crises in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Burundi, where you have leaders trying to seek, you know, additional um, uh, terms in power, um, and there are real concerns about, you know, a flare-up in violence in DRC. Um, the U.S., you know, one area where they are quite engaged is on sort of counterterrorism, but that there isn't really kind of a diplomatic piece to that. So, you know, they're ramping up of special forces operations in Somalia. Um, but on the other side, sort of working on sort of promoting stability, you know, you see the United States kind of withdrawing, not totally withdrawing, but sort of scaling back in terms of commitment to peacekeeping operations, you know, uh, from South Sudan to, to Mali, where uh, the French and, and other UN, you know, peacekeepers are struggling to uh, maintain stability in the face of kind of um, a real challenge from um, from extremist uh, Islamic groups. So um, so they, I, I can't imagine that they're going to come to New York, you know, with really a game plan that is going to deal with the range of issues that sort of are presented to them. And of course, the Trump administration has been pushing very much to cut back funding for the UN and UN programs. Has that already had an effect in terms of U.S. engagement on some of these issues? Well, I mean, you know, the U.S., Came in. I mean, so the U.S. has been engaged on peacekeeping, and so uh, Nikki Haley has sort of cited that as one of her priorities. And, and in doing so, she kind of said that she wanted to sort of really focus on trying to make them function more efficiently. Um, that is sort of a position that the previous administration took, but they invested a, a far more 
political capital in trying to, you know, rally allies to support UN peacekeeping, and you don't see that happening. I mean, it seems that there is a sense from other delegations who are involved in peacekeeping that the Americans are much more concerned with the um, with the bottom line financially, and that you know they are coming to the table, you know, with a particular number before they've really worked out what it is they want the mission to do. And this sort of played out in in discussions over, you know, South Sudan, discussions over, over Mali. Um, the French, you know, struggled to try and get, you know, the, basically the way it works is that, you know, the U.S. takes kind of the lead in dealing with sort of terrorist issues in Somalia. The French are quite active uh, in the Sahel, and um, they cooperate and collaborate with the Americans, but they're kind of, you know, on the front lines. And so, they were are trying to form uh, an alliance, a coalition with African countries called the G5, and they were looking for um, broader U.S. support, broader, broader international support um, to underwrite the cost of, of managing this coalition. And so they were seeking funding through the U.N., and the Americans pushed back on that because they're um, you know, they basically don't want the budget to go up. So there, there may be uh, reasonable, you know, re-grounds for not supporting the French proposal, but it seems that from the U.S. perspective, this is driven very much by their concerns about the cost. Yeah, Ambassador, going back to what you said, that the Trump administration has not articulated really any policy, let alone interest in Africa. So in the absence of Trump's interest, if you look at other key figures in the administration, Rex Tillerson at the State Department, Jim Mattis at the Pentagon, um, I guess to some extent H.R. McMaster is the national security advisor, have any of them expressed any policy concerns, interest? Do you see anything coming from those figures in the administration? Nothing serious. I think Secretary Mattis, I, I believe, uh, was in Djibouti, the Combined Joint Task Force Horn of Africa, uh, several weeks ago, um, which obviously plays an important role on CT uh, matters, particularly in, in the Horn of Africa. But the irony is that uh, even just based on what we understand to be the priorities of this administration, uh, a focus on trade that helps to build American jobs, a focus on counterterrorism, questions of uh, of helping to sort of open uh, more markets to support American businesses. These are all things in which one could craft and advance a U.S. policy towards Africa that would you know differ from predecessors and that clearly would be different from President Obama's, but that would still nevertheless not only be intelligible but also be in the interest of the United States. And the fact that we are, that you could have had a big Maybe in as much time since the president was inaugurated until now, and we still don't even have a clue uh, how we're going to deal with um, this massively important continent is stunning. I mean, it's worse than not only do we not know if today at the end of this podcast, the president decided that he was now ready to finally nominate a, an assistant secretary of state for Africa, just thinking about the congressional calendar. Uh, it could easily be uh, until Thanksgiving, until that person is actually uh, on the job. So one really has to ask the question, what is the game plan with regard to every senior person you just mentioned in this administration, with regard to Africa in particular, but also, frankly, with regard to the instruments of diplomacy and our non-military aspects advancing our uh, interests around the world? Well, taking that as a starting point, I mean, the Pentagon, the, the, the military bases, the infrastructure, our military engagement in Africa, it appears continue to, if not grow, at least remain at an elevated level, while at the same time, there's this pressure, as Colin mentioned, on pulling back funding for peacekeeping. What are the implications of that? And how is how will that be looked at from Africa? 
I think there are a number of ways to think about it. I mean, the first is that it is, of course, there are always uh, things that can be done to help streamline and improve the capacity of the UN in terms of how it does peacekeeping operations. That said, as a general proposition, to the extent that the United States cares about stability uh, and advancement of human rights, both for their own sake and also what it does for our interests, peacekeeping as a general proposition is a bargain, uh, precisely because we're never going to see U.S. troops deployed to eastern Congo or to northern Mali for the sake of uh, helping to you know, address those sorts of security issues that are in those places. So somebody has to do it. So what's going to happen, I predict, is that we are going to see some crises on the continent in Africa that Ambassador Haley in New York, that you know, Secretary Tillerson uh, is, is going to have to be asked, what are we going to do? If there is, God forbid, a renewed genocide in Burundi, if we do see a complete collapse of governance in the middle of a Democratic Republic of the Congo, which leads to refugee flows, if we see an already god-awful situation in South Sudan turn into just complete and utter bloodshed to levels we still haven't seen, what is going to be the response of the United States? And you cannot answer that question. Without some sort of UN capacity, you cannot answer that question without an ability to commit to humanitarian uh, uh, operations. You cannot answer that question without, frankly, American diplomats and aid workers on the ground to be prepared to sort of fund and support. So I think, quite frankly, the president's uh, rhetoric, such as it is, is going to come up against reality in a very rude and painful way. Uh, in the not-too-distant future. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned China and sort of in the vacuum that, you know, China's influence on the continent may grow. You know, we talked in one of our previous podcasts about the Afghanistan strategy and how it almost seemed like what really finally captured Trump's interest in Afghanistan was when he was briefed on the mining potential. Like, that was something he understood, maybe not the details, but it, it sort of captured his attention for the first time on Afghanistan. China does seem like that would be something that would fall into something that would interest Trump, is that just not resonating or no one's bringing that to his There no is pitching. nobody at home <laughs> to make that argument. To uh, him. <laughs> Who's it going to be? Right. I mean, yeah. the, the secretary of, uh, of state uh, has been to Angola, but clearly is not you know, seized with imagination with anything related to Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, we've just had a, a national security a senior director for national, uh, the National Security Council for Africa just named. H.R. Uh, McMaster, who's a, a, a great American, does not have great insight into that continent. Uh, so even if it makes all the sense in the world that the president should want to engage on the continent for nothing other as a check against Chinese influence, there's nobody at home to really make that argument. Well, then turning back, Dan, to the article, I mean, it, it does seem like it's a good sign that they at least, I, you know, identified someone that they wanted um, for Africa affairs. Is that a good sign, even <laughs> though it isn't going anywhere? They, they thought someone thought about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is important. to rem Well, the irony here, first of all, is that it's a Republican senator who's blocking this. And of course, yeah. the talking point is that it's... And a Republican senator interested in Africa, or at least in a specific Africa. Uh, at least in the North, yeah, North Africa. Um, yes, this is a case where, you know, and also there's the White House has occasionally blocked some appointments that, that Tillerson has wanted to make at the, t at the State Department. So there's the, in, the administration has its own internal battles going on that are blocking the fulfillment and appointments of a lot of key positions at, at the Defense Department and the State Department. Then when they finally do come around and agree on someone uh, who, by the way, I think would Peter Pham would probably get a very good reception, I'm told, in, from both sides of the aisle in, in Congress. It doesn't sound like there would be a difficulty getting him confirmed. 
and then here, here a Republican senator decides to uh, block things. So th- there's an irony there because the talking point, it's all the Democrats' fault. But I think it would be interesting to think about uh, assuming eventually Inhofe relents uh, and, and uh, there is an assistant secretary. I would think that this issue about the vacuum in China – would be would be an argument you would take to the White House, you know, mm-hmm. if you're trying to get some airtime for <laughs> attention for for that continent, right, from the president from the White House, uh, apart from counterterrorism and Al Shabaab and, and Boko Haram, that you would say, you know, listen, if we don't get our act together, uh, we're going to lose this contest for influence, uh, 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 economic opportunities, the kind of political diplomatic presence. So, and there are people making that argument already that that. Uh, and it's not just China, there's India, there's other actors there. Uh, so it, it is ironic that this kind of months-long vacuum is possibly jeopardizing a really important uh, market, uh, really important op- uh, commercial opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Africa is not what it was when Trump was a child or when he was young. Uh, it's a much different place uh, with, you know, these tremendous kind of uh, economic growth in some of these countries and, and consumer markets and so on. And so next to Cincinnati, Secretary will probably try to get his attention with terrorism and and China, and you know we need to we need to focus on both those things. But then that brings up another question I like to put out there, and maybe Colm or or an ambassador would like to say something, which is, you know, where will where will this administration come down in dealing with less than democratic regimes? Yes, or out and out <laughs> strongmen, and of course Sudan is a classic example, right? So they're helpful supposedly on counterterrorism. But, uh, you know, is that worth kind of forsaking human rights and, and, and democracy concerns? Well, the State Department, this is calm, the State Department is shutting down its, you know, Office of War Crimes Bureau. So that's a clear indication that pursuing, you know, world leaders uh, responsible for mass atrocities around the world has become something less of a priority. So I... You know, I don't think they're particularly, you know, I mean, the Republicans have not traditionally been particularly pro-International Criminal Court, um, you know, supporters of the International Criminal Court. They have um, grudgingly backed it. They have it even, even under the Bush administration, backed it in specific cases, for example, um, the effort to prosecute the Sudanese leader and um, for atrocities in Darfur. But, um, but there isn't a lot of love for the ICC. There is less love for it in, in Africa these days, so I can't see this being an issue that they're going to want to expend a lot of political capital over. And they just, you know, I mean, you heard Tillerson speaking you know, earlier in the year about sort of downplaying the importance of values of human rights and that sort of things in terms of diplomacy. So uh, I think justice, promotion of democracy, I, I you know, don't see any reason to think that that's going to be a great priority either. I think Colm's right on that. And if I could add a, a, another twist to this. Africa has the potential to be the largest democratic region in the world both because it's the single largest region with the single largest number of sovereign members, 54 or 55, depending on what you think of Western Sahara, but also because all of the institutional documents on which the African Union is based and that also support other pan-African or total pan-African or regional institutions all focus on the importance of democracy. They are clearly imperfect in practice, but they've agreed to all of them in principle. The problem is that Africa can't get there on its own. 
So unlike, for example, Europe, when the prospect of joining the European Union and joining NATO was something of a flywheel to help create the kind of uh, uh, political uh, force to get Eastern European countries to make the kinds of necessary democratic reforms to join the democratic community uh, of, of European nations. There's no single entity inside Africa that is strong enough to bring along by itself other African countries to adhere to their uh, democratic ideals. That is precisely why it is so vitally important for the United States, also in cooperation with our friends in Europe and elsewhere, uh, to continue to champion and advance democracy on African democratic terms inside the continent. And this is something that will play out over the course of the next couple of generations. We will see either in the next 30 or 40 years, a continent that is looking more towards the United States and towards the West in terms of how they decide to govern themselves and all the concomitant implications of that for coalition building, or that is looking more towards China and the East for more frankly repressive ways of organizing themselves with all the concomitant implications of that. And the fact that this administration has, as, uh, as Colm said this through the Secretary of State, uh, has at a minimum downplayed the importance of democracy of promotion, that you have a president of the United States who said in his, uh, in his inaugural address that we're not going to be essentially you know, talking about our own values abroad, and who frankly has demonstrated uh, his uh, love affair with uh, anti-democratic Democratic strongmen from Erdogan to Duterte to his favorite anti-democratic strongman, Vladimir Putin. This is stunning. It's absolutely stunning. And I think that we actually simply have it's, – it's simply inexcusable uh, on a bipartisan basis uh, for, for our country to accept that we are going to abdicate our traditional role of advancing democracy around the world. Well, you mentioned all of the sort of the four – you know, the, the dictators abroad that, that Trump has embraced. Um, what about domestic events back home in Charlottesville? You wrote a rather provocative article for us with – I think it was Donald Trump as a Nazi sympathizer. I did not choose a title. I know. No, uh, yeah. For the record. Yes, yes. Um, uh, but, but I met every word in the piece. Absolutely. But you know, it's a domestic issue. But it is that playing out. I mean, I've read a little bit about how it's played out in Europe, of course, and Africa, where you have a president talking about the violence on all sides. Um, you know, with a march that included, you know, Ku Klux Klan, Nazi sympathizers, neo Nazis. How does that look from the perspective of different countries in Africa? It's god awful. Yeah. I mean, and, and and frankly, tell me a scenario in which it looks good. Yeah, no, no, right. No. I mean, it's 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 horrible. Um, and this was, by the way, uh, already after the fact when the African Union actually issued a travel warning for Africans traveling to the United States, uh, particularly in the wake of Ferguson, that they uh, uh, might not expect to be treated reasonably well by American uh, uh, law enforcement officials. I mean, look, we clearly really have an awful lot of work to do here in the United States. And the fact that it is at all controversial in any sense of the word that any American president, regardless of party, has to think about whether or not they're going to be a full, give a full-throated condemnation to white supremacists or others uh, shows, frankly, uh, just how negative we are. Now, as you might imagine, I've gotten a lot of love letters uh, for that piece that I wrote. I and, and there are a number of people who say, well, that's, of course, not what the president said. Of course, he denounced Nazis, et cetera, Etc. But uh, this has really become, frankly, something of a Rorschach test in which there are those of our fellow citizens who saw the events of Charlottesville and elsewhere and see not only nothing wrong with it, but actually see an awful lot to praise the president for. And there, then there is the rest of humanity, both in terms of here in the United States, our, many of our allies and friends abroad that take a look at what happened with the gas and really are really wondering what is going on in our country. It is impacting our ability to, um, to project American soft power 
power all around the world and is frankly doing really great harm uh, to the reputation of our country. Well, unfortunately, that is a great way to sort of wrap up or summarize the situation, which is on a quite pessimistic note. But thank you for joining us. ER nerds, again, we love hearing from you. If app episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Ambassador Dan Collum, thanks for joining me today. Pleasure. All right, thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.